What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. My name is George the Poet. When I was 17, 18, there was a musical revolution across my community, and this was called Funky House. So it was an adaptation of house music. But it was interesting that Funky House took off among young Londoners at the time because we were used to grime, rap, and dancehall, Jamaican music. And in all of those forms, it's like an energy shock. But Funky House was a different style altogether. It, first of all, was a slow burner. It would take a long time for the main melody to kick in. It didn't give you a chorus. It didn't give you a single lyric for the first three minutes of the song. Secondly, it was really long. We were learning seven-minute songs. Us, young Londoners, I had only ever seen us as having a very short attention span. And that really just moved me profoundly because I still loved it. We all loved it. That taught me that people can listen differently. I'm saying, all right, if we can listen to longer songs, I wonder if we can listen to more elaborate ideas. Like, what if I could tell more detailed stories? And my writing became more and more like that. Everyone knew me in rap circles. They knew me as a storytelling rapper. And I just invited my audience to trust that. I invited them to not be impatient because that's what Funky House taught me. What if I can say, just like Funky did, these are my terms. In embarking on my podcasting journey, I sought to do what Funky House did for us as teenagers. I sought to give the listener an opportunity to enter a new world. I talk about the relationship between crime and music in um, street culture. I talk about the migrant crisis of 2015 and how it spoke to a wider context. I talk about Ugandan politics. I talk about the Grenfell tragedy. World events that will allow me to indicate to a young person how they might want to respond to society and contribute. That might not be for everyone. And maybe, yeah, I'm not getting many views and many listens in the first year. But... In the second year, we like won every single award. The listeners proved me right. If you're not familiar with this voice, meet George the Poet. Spoken word artist, social commentator, and the Peabody award-winning creator of Have You Heard George's podcast. This story about being inspired by Funky House carries so many of the long-time ideas taking your time and not rushing, seeing the bigger picture, highlighting and exploring the structures that shape our lives and finding new stories for them. But there's another reason George is with us today. He's just begun a PhD in economics. In which I look at the role of black music in creating value across black life worldwide. The poet and the economist are both storytellers. They both extract a narrative from the sum of human activity. This idea of focusing on narratives is so key because this episode is all about highlighting the stories and structures that seem invisible to us but drive our everyday behaviour. So it's about making the invisible visible, kind of like throwing water on a spider's web. Love the analogy, Ella. I love it. In this series, we're throwing water on the web of all the things that make and keep us short term. And one of the things that I see is that they all spiral out from the economy. I can't tell you how many people have told me that they want to embrace the long term, but the barrier that's in their way? Getting stuck on the financial treadmill. It's our economy that's forcing us to be short-term. And so, I'd like to introduce you to an economist who has made it her life's work to challenge it. 
I'm Kate Rayworth. I'm a renegade economist because it's so clear that economics needs totally transforming and rewriting for the 21st century. Short-termism turns up in <laughs> everywhere because politicians are thinking not only of getting re-elected in the next four-year cycle, they're thinking of stats that are going to be reported and how is GDP, gross national product and national income, how is it doing against this time last year? And how's that going to look in the papers? How's that going to look for my reputation? But also they're judged daily by the hour against the latest tweets and the political headlines. So they get caught through media reporting and financial reporting in incredibly short timelines. But companies, companies are trapped. Talk to anybody who works in a publicly traded company that has shareholders. The chief financial officer will tell you, we want to become a more sustainable company. We'd love to be able to buy our raw materials from more sustainable sources. And we want to pay decent wages. But meanwhile, every quarter, we are put under pressure to give quarterly reports to our shareholders to show that we have growing profits, growing sales and growing margins. Where is the room for transformation in that? It's an incredibly tight, demanding agenda to be captured by. So we're caught by the real short-termism of financial markets, ultimately, that are, are now making trades in nanoseconds. The high speed and the high demands and the vicious expectations of financial markets have repercussions throughout our economies, and it utterly undermines the scope for thinking long-term. So a company will say long-term thinking, oh, you mean the next three to five years? That's what long-term means to them. So we've got this really short-term system that is clearly limiting our health, happiness and future. How did this happen? How did we end up with an economy that constantly pulls us back into the short-term, even when we might want to be more long-term? Let's take a trip back in time to investigate the beginnings of the financial system that we live in and has come to dominate the world. Our existing economy, capitalism, is like the air we breathe, the water we swim in. My name is Dr. Jason Hickel, and I'm an economic anthropologist. When people think of capitalism, they tend to think of things like markets and trade. But the thing is that markets and trade were around for thousands of years before capitalism. So capitalism is a relatively recent system, only about 500 years old. Now, to understand what capitalism is, it's quite helpful to know a little bit about its origins, which actually have to do with feudalism in Europe. So I'm just going to take you back there for a little while. So feudalism, as everybody knows, was a brutal system where peasant farmers were exploited as serfs on the estates of wealthy landowners. But what's interesting is that peasants fought against the feudal system in a series of extraordinary revolutionary uprisings. And despite horribly violent repression and massacres by the elites at the time, the feudal lords, they eventually succeeded in overthrowing it in the late 1300s. Now, in its place, they established the seeds of a more egalitarian, more democratic society, where the peasants controlled their own land along with collectively managed commons like forests and pastures and rivers, etc. And the key principle of this emerging society was that everyone should have access to the resources necessary to live well. Nobody would be cut off. During this period, standards of living improved, nutrition went up, wages went up, rents went down, life became more affordable. But the elites were not pleased with this turn of events because they were no longer able to exploit cheap labor and pile up the profits that they had enjoyed under feudalism. So they needed a way to push wages back down, and they did that by engaging in a process of enclosure. And this really is the crux of the history of capitalism. Enclosure was a process of forcibly removing peasants from their land and fencing off the commons for the private use of elites. Whole villages were raised, crops were destroyed, hundreds of thousands of people were displaced. It basically created a massive internal refugee crisis. And here's the clincher. Suddenly, for the first time in history, people were cut off from the land entirely and had no access to the means of survival, except to sell themselves for wages. But the growth imperative of capitalism in Europe 
required cheap labor and resources on a massive scale well beyond what Europe itself could supply. The enclosure alone was not enough. So European elites also began colonizing much of the global south. People have a tendency to think of capitalism as separate from colonialism and the slave trade. But the reality is that they are all part of the same package and they operated together. Colonization and mass enslavement was the mechanism by which most of the world was roped into the European capitalist system. Ever since colonialism 500 years ago, we've lived in a single economic system, more or less. And it's crucial to grasp that this single economic system still basically revolves around colonial patterns of exploitation. So the global north, by which I mean the US, Canada, Europe, Australia, New Zealand, and Israel, and Japan, the nation's rich economies, basically, relies heavily on resources and labor from the rest of the world. Just to give you an example for how big this is, let me just give you a sense. Every year, the rich countries of the global north appropriate a net of 12 billion tons of raw materials from the global south, which is more than twice what the entire continent of Africa extracts and produces every year. Also, 800 million acres of land, so twice the size of India, of products from land is appropriated from the global south every year. That's enough to feed three to six billion people a nutritious, healthy diet. And yet instead, it's organized around servicing the desires of affluent northern consumers. It's a crazy waste of raw materials and land and labor worth trillions of dollars, enough to end poverty many times over. And this is why global inequality continues to increase in the post-colonial decades. This is a brutal history, and one that has created a brutal present. The system has been so effective at serving the needs of a tiny group of people at the expense of the many. When I think of it, I think of an obese, insatiable creature, because at the heart of capitalism is exponential growth. Even when capitalism is wasting resources, exploiting the majority of the world's workers, destroying vast swathes of our environment, and threatening our collective future, it can't waver from that one goal, to get bigger. It's focused single-mindedly, and again, this is what makes it distinctive, it's focused single-mindedly on growth. And this is what makes it even more short-termist, and it cares very little about the consequences that growth might have. Still, there's something about growth that feels like it should be a good thing, right? It all comes down to the word growth. The word sounds so good, so natural, right? Children grow, plants grow. We like to say we grow in knowledge and maturity and wisdom, et cetera, et cetera. Let's pause for a moment and think about that word, growth. We apply it to so many aspects of our lives. We grow up, we grow in confidence, grow closer, grow our careers, we pursue personal growth. All of these are good things. We tend to think of growth as good. Keep an eye out for these growth metaphors, because once you see them, you can't unsee them. They are everywhere. Much of what we understand in the world comes from metaphors. We are metaphorical creatures. It's really hard to understand the world. It's so complex. And so the way we try to make sense and with language is using metaphors in the way we speak. This is economist Kate Rayworth again. One of the most profound metaphors we use is the idea that progress is forwards and up. Think of the way we depict the progress of humanity from a lolloping four-limbed monkey on its knuckles to standing up and then it's homo sapiens standing erect, striding off into the future. Things are looking up. We're moving forwards. That's good. It's deeply ingrained. We then take that into our thinking about the economy. And so it's a very quick leap to thinking that growth and the curve of growth, which is an ever-rising line that shoots up off the page and through the ceiling, that that's what progress looks like. But in a natural system, nothing in nature grows forever. Trees don't grow taller and bigger endlessly. They grow and then they mature. I mean, obviously, nothing can grow indefinitely. Even a five-year-old can tell you that. And yet, in economic terms, this isn't what growth looks like. Growth is the sign of success. 
This is so deeply rooted that you hear this idea of endless growth rooted in every political speech and in the news and journalism, in economics textbooks. It's so crucial that we question this because it's taking us in an incredibly damaging direction. So the model of progress that we've inherited is in our minds an ever rising growth and ever ongoing expansion. In 2019, a child took to the stage at the UN to call out global leaders. People are suffering. People are dying. Entire ecosystems are collapsing. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction. And all you can talk about is money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. How dare you? This clapping, what is it that the audience were applauding? The fact that Greta Thunberg had the bravery to say what she saw, to speak the truth to power? That the idea that our economy can just keep growing and growing is a fairy tale? Or the fact that she spoke a secret that they all already knew, that nothing can grow forever? Our resources are finite, and at some point, they will run out. We know that endless growth is a threat. If I told you my friend had a growth, we suddenly go very quiet because we know that when something tries to grow endlessly within a healthy living system that is a human body, that that is a threat to the health of the whole. When something tries to grow endlessly, it will devour the system on which it depends. And we're seeing it socially and we're seeing it ecologically. It's not in the future, it's happening now. The language of growth is like an ideology that convinces us to accept all sorts of destructive things that we might otherwise reject or think twice about because we're told that rising GDP is always good, when in fact it primarily benefits a small elite. GDP, gross domestic product. Okay, according to the Cambridge English Dictionary, gross domestic product is the total value of the goods and services produced by a country in a year. Okay, so that doesn't help us that much. What's it got to do with growth? Let's try the internet this time. Okay, the Bank of England's website has an explanation. Perfect. I'll paraphrase. Gross domestic product, or GDP, is a measure of the size and health of a country's economy over a period of time. It is also used to compare the size of different economies. When GDP goes up, the economy is growing. So, GDP is a metric, the metric by which growth is measured, and the higher that total value of goods and services, the bigger the economy. Sounds reasonable. At first sight, that sounds reasonable. But, you know, only a fraction of what actually matters in our lives is sold through the economy. GDP doesn't touch all the unpaid caring work that happens in the household. The cooking, washing, sweeping, cleaning, the raising the children, teaching them to be members of society, that is invaluable for social well-being. It doesn't touch all of the value that's created in society through community through people volunteering, through people looking out for each other. And GDP measures what's sold, but it doesn't measure what's lost in the process. It'll tell you the price of timber. It doesn't tell you the loss of the value of the wood and all the creatures that lived there and the carbon dioxide that wood sequestered and prevented flooding in the valley below. GDP is an incredibly narrow metric. It's like if I gave you a car, that didn't have a dashboard, but only had one dial that goes up and down. So don't worry, you know, this dial, it tells you how much petrol there is, how fast you're going, the temperature of the engine. You wouldn't want to drive that car. You want a dashboard. You want to see the complex array and be able to balance between them. And what's interesting is that one of the economists who is principally responsible for inventing this measure, his name is Simon Kuznets, in the 1930s, he was careful to warn the U.S. Congress at the time that it should never be used as an indicator of social progress, precisely because it doesn't count costs. And so he said, look, if you ever use this as a measure of progress and just try to maximize GDP, then you're going to cause extraordinary devastation and without much benefit to human well-being. And yet we have ignored Kuznets' warning and GDP has been enshrined as a core metric for progress in virtually every country in the world. 
Right. With a potted history of capitalism and an understanding of GDP in our back pocket, it's time to go and meet George again. Hi, George. Hello. <laughs> How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. How are you? And we're about to do something quite exciting. We're heading into the belly, belly of, the, of beast. the beast. We're outside the Bank of England. Here we are. Pretty grand building. It's got some pretty good columns. Yeah, impressive columns. Yeah, that's what you want in a building, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> we definitely feel like we're in the financial district. What's brought you here to this slightly weird encounter? It's a good question. My research all stems from the fact that I grew up making music. For some reason, music was always calling me. And I know it's the same for my whole generation. And what I realised is that music, for a lot of young black people, is just a natural fit in terms of where we can make our impact in an industry. So I wanted to know, like, how, what would it take to create a plan for economic stability for a lot of young black people who come from environments like mine where, you know, it's lower household income, there's a lot of unemployment. And that just led me to pull at the string of the economy and be like, okay, so where do we fit in the bigger picture? And if there is a corner of the economy that we can really make it work, why is nothing being done to um, help us out? And that just opened me up to a much broader analysis of the economy. I started realizing that economics occurs in our daily decisions, in our daily lives, in our homes, in our mode of transport, in everything. It's just a lens that you can apply to the day-to-day -day life. There's lots more I want to talk about, but I think we need to, do we need to go? The Bank of England is a weird place. They won't let us record inside, so let me describe it. It's like a city within a city. Once you're in the fortress, in the basement, they've got not only bouillon, but also barbers and even bars. To get to the chief economist's office, we're walking along grand marble hallways that look out onto a closed courtyard with mulberry trees in it. The bank feels like another world. And... Suddenly I'm reminded of the time when I was 18 and my dad tried to get me to do an economics course at university. He thought it was important for me to know how the world worked. I clearly remember walking into day one of Economics 101. I'd come from a rural state school and now found myself in a room full of posh white boys from some of the country's most elite private schools. I felt intimidated and like I didn't belong. It all felt so removed from the real world. And so I left and didn't go back. And that's why I'm a bit apprehensive just being here, inside the Bank of England, about to meet its outgoing chief economist, Andy Haldane. Having responsibility for the economic analysis and coordination at the UK Central Bank is a big job. And Time magazine has named Andy as one of the world's 100 most influential people. One of the reasons we're keen to meet Andy, apart from the fact he wields enormous economic influence, is because 10 years ago, he gave a speech warning of the dangers of short-termism. And so, given that Kate says that economics professors aren't ready to talk about the limits of growth, perhaps he is. Hello. Come on in. Thank Ooh. you. Nice to see you both. I'm Ella. What are we doing? Fist pump? We can elbow do elbow, touch? Weird elbow Let's do touches. elbows. Yes. Nice to see you. Yeah. Good to see you, George. One of the things that we found when we talk to people about what's stopping them being more long term is that they say the economy works in all these ways that force us to be more short term than we'd like to be. Do you think our economy is forcing us to be more short term? And if it is, how? In what ways? I don't think it's the economy alone. A good part of this issue of whatever you want to call it, myopia, short-termism, lies within us. It's neurological. We've often, in our decision-making, had the telescope turned the wrong way around. And we either discount too heavily or indeed often just disregard things beyond the ends of our noses meaning tomorrow and to an even greater extent the day after tomorrow. What are some of the ways you see that manifested in the economy? 
look at the way that financial markets are run, often it's by people trading on time horizons that are sub-second, right? We're talking nanoseconds. I remember sitting here, though, with a guy who'd spent 30, 40 years managing money. And he said, you know what, Andy? When I started my career, there was a lot of long-term investors out there. And what I've seen over the course of my career is them progressively being squeezed out of the market. Because although they were right in the long run, if you were wrong for sufficiently long, you lost your job. Is that to say that people in the market with a long-term mindset often found that there were significant periods of not looking like they were making sense? Yeah, and losing money off the back of it. It was all about making that quicker buck. And that's been the path that financial markets have been on now for yeah, at least 50 years. It's really interesting. George and I were just chatting before we came in about how a lot of us often feel like these systems that we live in were kind of dropped from the heavens and like are immutable. They're here. They're never going to change. They're a bit like kind of held up by the columns that hold up this building. How can we today start to help this system become more long-term? What would you change to make the economy work better for more people today and more people tomorrow? Who's going first, George? I would say having an education system that talks to our young people about the economy. This is something that all young people should be getting an essential education on. You have to self-select as an economic student to get access to these conversations. So I think building up our young people's awareness of the economy is a dream. I would love to see that in my lifetime. I've got a feeling my answer is going to sound really boring, which is how we add up, how we keep score. I think what we measure right now is defective. It's all about growth or GDP, as it's sometimes summarized. To look only at the flows of things is to miss out on the long-term path of the economy, which isn't just financial things like wealth but could be environmental things, the stock of natural capital or the stock of social capital. So we need to shift from a singular focus on financial measures of capital to a more plural set of capitals would be a wholly different way of us as a society, as an economy, keeping score, focusing on that long-term stuff that we know if we don't fix, it ultimately blows us up. Too often, I think economics is cast this kind of value-neutral way. It's all about kind of technocratic choices about measurement. And some of it's that. But ultimately, I mean, we are making moral choices. Are we going to make the moral choice to help and protect future generations, our kids and our kids' kids, or not? It's about values as well as value. I do think it calls for a bit of a shift in mindsets and ideologies. But can the story change? And therefore, can society change? It absolutely can. And if I can end on a positive, the reason societies improve is because someone out there imagines a different world and then sets about creating it. And it's within all of us to imagine that different world and set about creating it. After we finish up with Andy, George and I head outside for a debrief. Okay, so it felt like there was a lot of bringing back the conversation to the fact that like as individuals, we're innately short term. And for me, I think I'm much more interested in the systems that we're in and the way that the systems trap us. I mean, that's the frustration that I find. Ultimately, all of our behavior exists within the systems that we share, right? Yeah, totally, totally. And I think that's part of the problem is that we don't see ourselves as living in a system. We think it's all about us as individuals and all of the problems that we experience are our own fault as individuals instead of being the fault of the system that we're living in. And you're right, it feels really hard and really foreign to do that. And I think that's part of the job. It's to help us all see the systems that we're living in so that we can start to change them like, you, like it's where we began the conversation like if you can't see it how do you start to change it mm, mm. sprinkle the water on the web yeah water on the web <laughs> to be clear george and i aren't saying that as individuals we can't make a difference 
quite the opposite. What we're saying is that by focusing on us as individuals and the things we don't do, like, say, saving for a rainy day, this misdirects us from looking at the real reason we don't save for a rainy day, which isn't because of personal failings or human nature, but because we're stuck in a system that makes it very hard for most of us to be long-term, no matter how much we might want to. As we've already heard in parts one and two, humans are not intrinsically short-term. What determines our ability to be long-term are the systems we inherit and create. Now, it's no coincidence that our conversation in the heart of London's historic financial centre has us thinking about individuals. Our economy today rests on a very particular idea of what it means to be human. Economics first emerged as moral philosophy, and it was deeply entrenched in this question of what is the good life? What matters in the world? And this is a question that that philosophers answer, or poets. But gradually it became a mathematical discipline that makes all sorts of problematic assumptions about nature and about humans and motivation and so on. We've inherited an economic mindset that's been really tightly exaggerated, actually, since Reagan and Thatcher in the early 1980s. It's a way of thinking about what the economy is and what success looks like that's just become dominant over the past decades. Neoclassical economists have come to be the most powerful people in the world. They control economic policy in most governments. And the question of the rational economic man sits at the very center of virtually all of neoclassical economics. Let's bring out onto the stage Homo economicus. It's a character that is assumed to represent universal human nature. This individual who is an isolated, independent person who says, I'm not influenced by other people, I'm independent-minded. Driven by money and the price of things, driven by ego and self-interest, and also seeing himself at the pinnacle of the living world as if standing on top of the pyramid of life. So the idea is that you maximize utility, you maximize your own financial interests, you're calculating. It's a mindset that tells us, first of all, humans have insatiable wants and needs, and that we're competitive and endlessly seeking to acquire more. Now, what's interesting is that this is just a figment of economist's imagination. It's this really narrow depiction of who we are. I think of him as a, as a man standing alone without dependence, with money in his hand and ego in his heart. Which basically comes from their own experience, historically, primarily as elite white men, projecting their own values as people involved in capitalism, into the rest of humanity, right? So the assumption is that we all think and behave exactly like them, trying to maximize capital. The more that economic students learn about this character of rational economic man, the more they come to mimic him, the more they say they value self-interest and competition over altruism and collaboration. So who we tell ourselves we are shapes who we become. Now, what's interesting is that there's some research that came out recently by a team of scientists from both Harvard and Yale who collaborated on this, and it had to do with the way people behave towards finite ecological resources. Now, traditional economic theory assumes that people will make a rational decision to exploit resources for immediate financial gain, even if it means stealing from future generations or somehow harming future generations, because there's no financial benefit to sharing with the future they can't share back with you. And so according to rational economic modeling, we will all make a decision to sabotage our planet in the near term for the sake of immediate financial gain, even if it means destroying the possibility of future civilization. This is not true. What they found was that when you give people collective democratic control over resources, they easily outvote the selfish minority and opt to preserve resources into the future using them in a sustainable way. They literally care for the future, even at the cost of their own financial gain. And they ran this experiment over multiple generations, multiple iterations, and they always found the same result over and over. No depletion or destruction. And that is an incredible result. The the dominance tendency in human nature, if you want to call it that, is to preserve ecology for the future and to use it sustainably. That is our impulse. That is what we want to do. That's the kind of economy we want to live in. And under democratic conditions, that's what we do. 
So the question is, we live in democracies, so why does this not work? Why does the real economy not look like this? And the answer is because we don't live in real democracies, because our political systems are overwhelmingly captured by elite interests, corporations and rich people who can pay off politicians. And therefore, we have not had the opportunity to have a conversation about what an ecological economy might look like. All this shows that our economies didn't drop down from the sky, but are stories created by a very particular group of humans at a particular moment in history based on a very particular idea about what it means to be human. And this is exciting because it means that we, this generation of humans, can create new stories. But this isn't usually what we're taught. Instead, we're told that alternative economic models, such as socialism, have been total historical failures. And so even thinking about new ones is utterly pointless. So everyone wants to talk about Soviet Russia, for example. And because Soviet Russia was a disaster, that means that we cannot ever even think about imagining something better. We must reject this idea that we can't build an alternative that is better than anything we've had in the 20th century. The travesty is that the economic students of today, they are the citizens of 2050, and they are being taught theories dreamt up in the 1850s. And you know, if the economists from the 1850s, if Adam Smith and Karl Marx and John Maynard Keynes and John Stuart Mill, if they were alive today, I swear they would say, what are you doing? You live in an utterly different era from us. Do you have no ideas of your own? We would have rolled up our sleeves and we would have come up with ideas that are fit for the reality of the times. Move on, folks. Hi, my name is Sam and I'm one of the teachers at Headspace. There are a lot of incredible ideas being discussed here at the Longtime Academy. I thought you might like to take a moment to let some of these ideas sink in. I invite you to take some deep breaths with me right now. So let's start by taking a slow, deep breath in and out through the nose. And on your next slow, deep breath, just feel your lungs expanding and contracting as you breathe. Nice, and then bring your attention back to the space that you're in. If you'd like more of this, along with meditation courses and sleep and focus exercises, join me inside of the Headspace app. Go to headspace.com and use code LONGTIME at checkout for 30 days free. That's headspace.com and use code LONGTIME at the checkout. Now back to the show. The great news is that there are all kinds of people all over the world rolling up their sleeves and creating alternative economies, drawing on both new and ancient ideas. Change is happening. And we've already met one of the people leading the charge, Kate Rayworth. I went off to university to study economics because I believed that economics was the mother tongue of public policy. I mean, you hear it in every political speech and on the news and in the papers. And I gradually realized that the very things I cared most about weren't cropping up very much. The living world, social justice. And I found that the concepts being used didn't really do justice to these topics. I never wanted to stick out my hand and say, hello, I'm an economist. That felt embarrassing. So I'm part of a movement to rewrite economics so it's actually fit for the century and centuries ahead. What we need is an economy that meets the needs of all people within the means of the living planet. And when I sat down and tried to draw a picture of what that could look like, silly though it may sound, it came out looking like a donut, the kind with a hole in the middle. And so Kate called her model Donut Economics. To understand it, let's draw what we in the UK call a ring donut. So we're drawing two circles, an outer ring and an inner ring. The bit in between them is what we eat, the doughy bit, the donut. Incidentally, my donut is chocolate with sprinkles. According to Kate, the best way to secure a long-term future is to live within the donut. And here's why. 
The inner ring represents a line we can't cross in terms of basic human needs. It's where people don't have the resources they need to have good food and clean water, decent housing, clean energy, transport, political voice, income. So leave no one in the donuts whole. And now the outer ring, well, that represents the planet's natural boundaries. We can't overshoot the donut's outer ring. That's where we cause climate breakdown. It's where we acidify the oceans. We break down the web of life. Go outside either of the rings and we're jeopardizing our future. In this model, living within the donut is quite literally our sweet spot. Because that puts a completely different purpose at the center of our vision. Our purpose is not to generate economic growth. No, our purpose is to meet the needs of all people within the means of the living planet. And to do that, we need to measure lots of things rather than just GDP. CO2 emissions, our material footprint, phosphorus, nitrogen, land use change, ecological footprint, life satisfaction, life expectancy, nutrition, sanitation, income, social... Scientists and policymakers can gather all this information and plot it directly onto the donut to create a clear yet detailed picture of where they're landing inside or outside of the donut on any of these things. I think 21st century metrics will not be single and monetary like GDP. 21st century metrics will be multiple. We can do this. This is the century of big data. We've got more information than any generation before us. So we have to put that information to good use and measure life as it happens in real terms for the long term. If we start there, then everything that follows is transformed. People have been getting pretty excited about the donut, and not just because it's an awesome sugary metaphor. It's got people all around the world coming together. People who aren't economists, people like you and me, and they're starting to use it to change the way their economies are running on a national, state, city, and even neighborhood level. I think 21st century economics is going to be practiced first and theorized later. Let me give you an example from the city of Amsterdam that has officially adopted the donut as its vision. So Amsterdam says, right, we commit to being a thriving, inclusive, regenerative city for all of its residents while living within planetary boundaries. That's the vision for the city, where resources aren't used up, they're used again and again far more collectively, more carefully, more creatively and more slowly. And let's go and look at places that are actually starting to do this. My name is Jared Ruiz Bybee. I am one of the co-founders of the California Donut Economics Coalition. If California were a standalone country, it would be the fifth largest economy in the world. My name is Fanny Broham. I was elected into the Copenhagen City Council. I wasn't interested in being re-elected. I was just determined to get the donut implemented in Copenhagen. My name is Imiko. I'm one of the co-founders of Civic Square. We're looking to pioneer what it means to downscale donor economics to the neighborhood scale. I'm Edward Miller, president of the University for International Cooperation. Costa Rica is using the donut at a country level. We're doing it from the private and academic sector. We're tired of discussing academia and discussing concepts. So we're moving into action. I was anxiously waiting for someone to start something in California. I've never studied economics other than Economics 101 in the university. People are scared of economics. They feel like they can't understand it, but nobody's scared of a donut. And so it felt really irresistible to try and put these ideas into action. Eventually just sort of got up the guts to put an event together myself. It was a real mosaic of all kinds of people. From the youngest, most intellectually agile, who could imagine whole new possibilities without the, the heaviness of the world, to the wisdom of elders. We brand ourselves as Denmark, as a green country. But if we look at consumption emissions, we are in fact one of the highest emitting countries in the world. And Copenhagen is the highest emitting municipality in Denmark. The picture is not so pretty as a lot of people would like it to be. This donut allows us to actually look at what is the priority. Costa Rica has CO2 emissions, biodiversity loss, land use change, fertilizer use over our planetary boundaries. And we have enormous inequality. We had our very first meeting in November of 2020, decided our first effort was going to be to paint a donut portrait for the state of California, sort of making a statement to the world saying, we know where we are and we know what we have to work on. 
Birmingham was the heart of the Industrial Revolution. So much of that relied on extractive, problematic behaviours across the world. How can we think about new stories without recreating that? By working with a different management of landscapes, getting rid of these fertilizers, getting rid of the pesticides, 79 insect species that were back. And families are producing tons of food per month. And the community is starting to thrive. They're increasing their life quality. I was in politics to get long-term results. So I created this cooperation between the left and the right. Green politics and economics was a total new concept to them. So I spent a lot of time finding the common ground around where we could actually see a common future together. What the other parties liked was the fact that we actually get more information. California by itself, it is a leader in the nation and it's a leader among political bodies across the world. I'm hopeful that if it can see the donut and start to make decisions based on that framework, that others will take notice and see the, the benefit in it. As Buck Fuller said, we need to show a better world to make the old one obsolete. We just actually reaffirmed here in June 2021 that we are having a major majority around getting donut economics to be implemented on the budget negotiations. So that it's not just a yearly report, it's actually being used directly to inform the policy making. We've adopted some bad stories and some bad frameworks and we can adopt something else too. We know that the cities who have put the donut at the heart of how that city is going to grow and move forward. So we know what that looks like. And we're in the early stages of building a really convivial movement of renegade economists from the ground up. My focus was just thinking about the next generations. The world needs these new ways of thinking politics and economics. By showing different countries their donut, I can get people to understand very quickly what it actually means to be a developed country that actually allows life to thrive and not consider a developed country one that has destroyed the planet. We have to make big decisions and there's nobody else to do it. There's nobody smarter that's in charge someplace. <laughs> it's just us. I think we can change the narrative. I really do. And again, that's what this is all about, writing a new story. All these people, some of whom are probably as bad at maths as I am, are creating a different economic system under our noses. Donut economics is one way of doing this, but creating a long-time economy isn't about trying to find the silver bullet, but instead cultivating a load of different ways of doing the economy, some new and some very, very old. To hear about another one of these, let's go to New Zealand to meet Maori investment pioneer Temuera Hall. Tem's fine, unless you can really get your tongue around Temuera. Tem is the managing director of Tahito, an indigenous ethical and sustainable investment fund. The word Tahito, the name of the company, actually refers to a period of time in our history called Te Ao Tahito, which was the period prior to our arrival to Aotearoa or to New Zealand. That's where the knowledge set that enabled our ancestors to traverse the Pacific using astronomy, astral navigation, and of course their connection to nature comes from. Thousands of years of deep observation of nature and astronomy. I liken it to blockchain. It's generations of data retained in linear form. We can show a genealogical connection to that, or what we call whakapapa, and it shows us where humans sit relative to the environment that we are part of. The Māori worldview is based on the intrinsic understanding of connection. The ocean, the forests, people, the earth, everything is interrelated, nothing exists of itself. We're a little bit weird in that we can say, look, I'm connected to that tree, to that ocean, to that fish, to that insect, and then to the emotion. This relational behaviour, its balance and reciprocity, its cooperational, consensual, that was all sort of impacted on with colonisation and Christianity. In the mid-1990s, Tem had graduated with a social sciences degree and after travelling the world, he returned to work at his tribe's trust. 
it's been left to us by our ancestors and our colonisation processes. The little land that we retained were put into trusts to be held on behalf of the descendants because we don't have a concept of ownership. That came with Captain Cook. Then, in the late 1990s, something quite remarkable happened in New Zealand. We implemented the Waitangi Tribunal and began what's called the the treaty settlement process here in New Zealand. So assets were given back to the different tribes as uh, compensation for grievances through the 1800s, mostly. We're now taking our own ownership and control of these assets. But as I said, some of the, the fundamentals are they're not owned. There's no shareholder ownership. They're collective assets held for future generations. So our land was planted in forestry, which become very wealthy very quickly. That trust started making a lot of money, and then we had to make calls on, well, how are we going to now invest these funds? Are we just going to outsource it to a large institution, or should we develop that capacity ourselves? They decided to do it themselves. I was the fortunate one that uh, was given that responsibility, but then um, other entities says, well, can you look after our money as well? So we then become a financial services business. Which eventually became Tahito, one of the world's first and only indigenous, values-led, listed equities fund. And for those of you who aren't sure what an equities fund is, same here. So let's do another web search. Okay, so equity funds invest in a range of different companies by buying shares in those companies. If the value of the company increases over time, those shares are worth more. We're saying it's not just about dollar value return for the shareholder. You have to be equally, if not more, focused on improving the environment, leaving the world in a better place. They come in with the knowledge that this is a fund premised on Indigenous values and it does have a long-term focus. When we apply our Indigenous values, we're making sure that the capital is going towards doing good. A nice, easy way of thinking about it is that anything that's going to poke a hole into the sky or into Ranginui, we are going to frown upon. Anything that rips into the earth or Papatuanuku, we're going to frown upon. If there's no woman board members, then that's a straight exclusion, that they don't go any further. If they're fossil fuels, easy, easy exclusion. It's a decision-making framework that will help decide exactly where funds are best invested. We look deep into the people, their policies, their messaging, their structures, to see if we can identify that their behaviours are genuine. In our language, we're trying to measure aroha, which loosely means love, but uh, more correctly, it means to be connected closely with someone where you actually then care and have an emotional connection with them. Since its inception, the Tahito Fund has invested in a number of companies which meet their standards. Those companies have not only are they doing well, they have outperformed the index. Even through the whole COVID period, we managed to stay above what we call the Trans-Tasman Index. We've already sort of proven that you can invest with a high level of ethics and sustainability and still outperform. And it's not just Thames Investment Fund that is doing well. The Māori economy now is is getting recognised and it's a fast-growing part of New Zealand's economy. It's about lifting all the boats. It's about improving education, health, trying to get our children away from falling into drug habits or crime because we, we still suffer a lot of that. We're still on the wrong side of the statistics, being a colonised Indigenous uh, group. It's a whole new paradigm, I suppose, for what our country can look like in the future by embracing this understanding of it's not about individual wealth, it's about collective wealth. Firstly, can we just pause and talk about how awesome it is to have an economics that talks about embodying love, connection and our collective wealth? Compare these values to rational economic man that Western economies are based on. Calculating, acting in his own self-interest, seeking only to maximise his utility in the present. I know which one I'd rather meet in a dark alley. 
So now let's cross the ocean from Temin, New Zealand, and head to North Carolina in the USA to visit an economist who is also pioneering ideas of collective wealth. Meet William Darity, better known as Sandy. Sandy is a Samuel Dubois Cook Professor of Public Policy, American Studies, Economics and Business at Duke University. I think I've always been a bit of a maverick in the world of economics. When I first studied economics in a formal way, I kept saying to myself, well, I'm not really sure that these ideas are valid. I think I've built a career on trying to identify policies that could lead to transformative change. That is, major changes in the structure of our existing societies. And one change Darity is interested in addressing is wealth inequality. So I'd like to distinguish between two types of wealth inequality. The first type I'd like to talk about is overall or general wealth inequality. And then I'd like to talk about um, uh, wealth inequality that that is race-based. General wealth inequality is truly staggering in the United States. 0.1% of Americans possess in excess of 20% of the nation's wealth. 0.1%. The conditions of wealth inequality that exist today are similar to the degree of wealth inequality that existed on the eve of the Great Depression. The stats are even more stark for inequality on the basis of race. The average net worth for a black household is $840,000 less than the average net worth of a white household. This is an enormous monetary gap. To find out why there were such vast differences between rich and poor, white and black, Darity took a longer-term view into the past. In the immediate aftermath of the period of slavery, when the Civil War comes to a close, the U.S. government had made a promise to the formerly enslaved of restitution in the form of the now legendary 40 acres of land But that promise was not kept. And so as a consequence, the newly emancipated emerge into their first years of freedom without any significant amount of resources. And on the other hand, at the same time, the federal government was providing one and a half million white families in the United States with 160-acre land grants in the Western territories It has been estimated that 45 million white Americans living today are beneficiaries of the 160-acre land-grant policy. This initial concentration of wealth in white hands has created a perpetual cycle of inequality, where those with capital, like land or money or property or ownership of natural resources, can use it to create more wealth. Money makes money. Wealth that can be passed down through families. Sandy observed that this was an intergenerational problem and so needed an intergenerational solution. The policy is popularly known as the baby bonds policy. It is not actually a bond. It's a trust account that would be provided to each newborn infant in the United States that would be calibrated in amount based upon the wealth position of their families. We usually say, well, suppose Bill Gates or Oprah Winfrey had a new child, then we could give them a $50 trust account. But for children who were born in the lowest end of the wealth distribution, they would get fifty to $60,000. Of course, you don't necessarily want to hand money to infants so the young people could access them when they reach young adulthood. The motivation is to give every child the foundation or the basis for an asset that they can make use of as an anchor for building wealth and economic security over the course of their adult years. Baby bonds have made it into the political debate in the U.S., and in fact, in June 2021, the state of Connecticut became the first state to bring in the policy. But Sandy is clear that although this will dramatically reduce the wealth gap, it won't eliminate it. 
For that, he suggests... This is a program of reparations for black Americans who had ancestors who were enslaved in the United States. I don't think there's anything else we could do to eliminate the racial wealth gap. Other kinds of strategies, like providing educational scholarships, I've already shown that you know education is not going to eliminate the racial wealth gap, or having community-level programs. We estimate that if you were going to close that gap of approximately $300,000 per person, it would require somewhere in the vicinity of at least $11 trillion. So that's the size of the bill. The idea of reparations has been dismissed by some as utopian and unrealistic, but support for it is growing. As of the year 2000, only 4% of white Americans endorsed reparations for black Americans. Although the idea is gaining traction. Today, the percentage appears to be closer to 30%. Whilst the momentum is moving in the right direction, it's still a policy unlikely to be picked up in Sandy's lifetime. But like all good cathedral thinkers, for Sandy, that doesn't matter too much. I started doing this work without an expectation that it would necessarily ever be taken seriously. The idea is, in some sense, uh, to leave bread on the water in hopes that at some point people will find the pieces of bread to be of use to them and will scoop them up like seagulls. Hi, George. Hello, Ella. <laughs> how are you doing? I'm all right. How are you? Yeah, I am. I am okay. Um, thinking back to that afternoon that we spent in the Bank of England, mm. what do you think about that now? How? What are your reflections on on that encounter now? Some time has passed. Hmm. Our experience at the Bank of England that day has reaffirmed my idea that the best thing I can do is agitate for a culture that treats these questions with more urgency. Because the expectation that individual choice will help people figure out a better economy or a more inclusive economy is the kind of thing you would say on a full stomach, not on an empty stomach. A lot of it is down to economic storytelling. Value makers versus value takers. I am sure that the value is in us sharing space to learn about each other. I've had similar conversations to what we had with the chief economist of the Bank of England since. Conversations with ultimately powerful people who operate within an institution that impacts a lot of people's lives. And um, I guess I've been influenced by our conversation because I've tried to press them on the potential for structural transformation that will do something about the things that we all know go wrong for a lot of people every single generation. The idea of kindness in the economy being devalued is something that I think we're all familiar with. We've got all this information to say that these sectors are extractive and can be manipulative and whatnot. We know. What do we do about it? By stepping back and taking a long-time perspective, today we've been able to zoom out and observe how our extractive, life-limiting, insanely short-term economic system, which often feels inevitable, eternal and immovable, isn't any of these things at all. In fact, it's very recent, it doesn't reflect human nature, and as we know, it definitely isn't working for most of the living world. Taking a long-time view allows us to see capitalism for what it is, a flawed narrative rather than an innate mathematical truth. And seeing it in those terms allows us to see that it's entirely possible to rewrite it. And then to answer George's question, what do we do about this? 
Well, today I have been so energized hearing from people all over the world who are already writing and living these other economic stories. Stories focused on love and kindness, not, as George says, on extraction and manipulation. The future is already here. And we can begin the work today of rejecting those fairy tale goals of endless growth, rolling up our sleeves and getting involved with the messy work of cultivating wiser, more compassionate economies that are ultimately truer to who we are. Today's Longtime Academy practice is all about cultivating compassion, using a foundational meditation technique called loving kindness. We've given it a long time twist to help you generate feelings of love and care for future generations. I'd love to hear how it goes. And I'll see you next time when we're going on a journey around the world to meet the people getting long time in the notoriously short-term world of politics. Please share this episode with someone you think would be interested in getting long time and come on over to thelongtimeacademy.com to connect with me, get involved with our Longtime Academy community and find a load of tools to deepen your journey. The Longtime Academy comes to you from Headspace Studios and The Long Time Project and is produced by Scenery Studios. It was created and produced by Lena Presswood and me, Ella Saltmarsh with producers Maddie Finlay and Ivor Manley. Additional research by Mamawe Ikida Hominska. Executive producers at Headspace Studios are Ash Jones, Leah Sutherland and Morgan Seltzer. Our original music is by Tristan Cassell-Delavoie, Scott Sorensen and Chris Mergier. <laughs>